The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 84. The sermon text is 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Psalm 84, and then 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Psalm 84, to the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Good things does He not withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let us go now to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and look at verses 14 through 16. Here the Apostle Paul writes to his co-worker Timothy, saying, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The passage that we are considering today should sound very familiar to you by now. I've quoted it many times in this sermon series in an attempt to keep Paul's purpose for writing to Timothy ever in view. He wrote to Timothy and through his leadership to the church in Ephesus so that they would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You've heard this before. As I have said many times now, Paul was concerned that the church be kept in good order. This passage that we are considering today is indeed central to Paul's letter to Timothy. Here at the midway point of his epistle... The Apostle states his purpose for writing. And today we have the opportunity to consider this passage in detail. And so let us now take it line by line. In verse 14 Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I will not spend too much time on these words, I hope to come to you soon, for they are not central to the main point of this passage, but they do provide us some insight into Paul's situation and also into Paul's desires. And I cannot help but note 
Paul's deep love and concern for the churches. In this case, he was writing to Timothy, who was ministering in Ephesus. But we know that Paul was deeply concerned for all the churches. He wrote many letters to many different churches and to their leaders. He traveled extensively to minister to them and at a great risk to himself. Truly, all of his energies were devoted to the building up of the universal Church of Christ through the establishment and strengthening of of local congregations. And so the words, I hope to come to you soon, may not strike us as terribly impressive But do not forget how difficult travel was in those days. And do not forget the trouble that Paul was already in with the Roman government on account of his missionary activity. It would have been so easy for him to merely write letters or to send messengers. But notice that Paul was eager to go to Timothy and to Ephesus to see to it that that congregation be strengthened. I hope to come to you soon, he says. And brothers and sisters, though it is true that there are no apostles in the church today... And though it is true that not all are called to the work of the ministry, as Paul and Timothy were, it is true that all Christians should, like Paul, be eager to see not only their own local church, but all the churches of Christ thrive for the good of the saints and the glory of God. When you read the pages of of the New Testament, you cannot help but notice that these churches, local congregations, were interconnected. In our day and age, and in our tradition, which does rightly emphasize the autonomy of each local church, it is common for churches to think only of themselves and to forget the universal church, which is manifest in many other local congregations spread throughout the world. And brothers and sisters, we must not forget about other churches. We must be faithful to pray for other churches and to assist them when it is within our power to do so. And this is why we have rejected as a congregation radical independency and do believe in associationalism instead. Associationalism refers to the meaningful and substantial interconnection of local churches. Our confession speaks to associationalism when it says that as each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places, and upon all occasions to further it, every one when planted by the providence of God, so that they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. That is a very quick reading of London Baptist Confession 2614. Here we are reminded that we should be concerned for other local congregations and whenever we have opportunity, we should do whatever we can to see them prosper as well. We should not just be about ourselves, but we should be about the establishment and encouragement of other churches as well. And I am saying to you, let us be sure to follow through on our confessional commitments and to imitate what we see modeled in the pages of Holy Scripture and that is to have a a true and deep concern for and cooperation with other true churches of Christ. I hope to come to you soon, Paul wrote to Timothy. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, Paul knew well what every Christian should know, that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That is Proverbs 16.9. These matters that Paul wished to communicate to Timothy were so important to the well-being of the church in Ephesus that Paul decided to write to ensure that the instructions would be received in time. 
Uh, perhaps the church was struggling greatly and needed these instructions right away. And so why did Paul write? Why did he write? It is so that Timothy and through his leadership every member of the church in Ephesus would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This was his purpose, to encourage Timothy to set the church in Ephesus in good order. Uh, That is what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do. Uh, Brothers and sisters, um, this is a wonderful letter that we have here uh, at our disposal. Uh, We see that the Apostle is eager to see the churches of Christ set in good order. And Paul does say many things to Timothy. He gives specific instructions to him concerning how the church should be ordered, concerning how we ought to behave within uh, the household of God, as we will soon see. Members have certain obligations. Uh, Remember, they, for example, are to lift up holy hands in prayer to the Lord. Uh, Officers have certain obligations too. Timothy was charged with the responsibility of putting out false teachers from uh, the church in Ephesus. And so we see that this letter, 1 Timothy, is filled with many specific instructions for the proper ordering of the church of Christ. Instructions for members, instructions for officers. We've encountered some of them already. We will encounter more as we Move on into the second half of this epistle. But here in the passage that is before us this morning, we are not so much told what we are to do specifically, but rather the Apostle here reveals to us what the church is. What is the church? What is this thing, the local church? What is it? And I hope that you would agree with me, brothers and sisters, that knowing what what a church is, will have a profound impact upon how we behave within it. Um, Here the Apostle calls the church a household. And we will explore that term more in in just a moment. Um, But if when you hear household or house of God, you think of a church building, I want to say to you from the outset that you're on the wrong track. Paul is not giving instructions for proper behavior within the chapel, if you will. Instead, he is giving instructions for proper behavior within God's family. That is the Apostle's concern. That is what he means by house or household. If you are a member of God's family, then this is how you should behave, is what Paul is saying. And I want you to see that we have expectations for our children, don't we? We expect them to represent our family name in a particular way, no matter where they are. They are to bring honor to the family and not shame. And more than this, we expect our children to behave in a way that fits the situation they are in. They are to bring honor to the family name always, no matter, where the, no matter what the situation may be. But our children should also know how to behave in different settings. When they are at school, they are to be quiet. Wouldn't you agree with that? They are to be attentive. When they are at home, they may be more relaxed. It's a more casual environment. When they are at play, they may be more rowdy. When they assemble within the church, they are to be reverent, etc., When Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, he is concerned in general that all the members of God's family behave in a way that is fitting for children of God always and everywhere. And in particular, he is concerned that the members of God's family behave in a way that is fitting when they assemble together as the church. Stated differently, it is so very important that God's children live in a way that is fitting both when they are scattered, 
and when they are assembled. When we leave this place and are scattered to our homes, our workplaces, our schools, and into the community, we must remember that we bear God's name. We are known as Christians, or at least we should be. And when we are, and there we are to represent the family name in thought, word, and deed. And when we assemble together as the church of God, we must behave in a way that is fitting. God's household is to be properly ordered. God's house is to be kept holy. And God's house, truth, is to be promoted and protected. Paul is concerned that the family of God behaves in a way that is fitting always and everywhere. But in particular, he is concerned that God's family knows how to behave when they assemble together as the household of God. And brothers and sisters, the key to knowing how you ought to behave in any given situation or setting is to first know the nature of and purpose of the organization you are a part of. Wouldn't you agree with that? How should parents behave within the family, we might ask? What should they devote their time to? What activities must they engage in? What attitude should they have? Well, it will be difficult to know if they do not first understand the nature and purpose of the family. They must have that foundational knowledge if they are to know how to act within the home. But if husbands and wives, parents and children have a clear view of the nature and purpose of the family, they will know how to act in that realm. How should I behave as a parent? What should I do? What should I devote myself to? Well, before you ask those particular questions, it is good for you to ask the more general question, what is a family? What is its purpose? Why do families exist? Then we will know what to do and what attitudes to bring into the household. I think that is what the Apostle Paul is doing here in this little section of 1 Timothy. He is not giving specific instructions to officers and members, do this, do that, check off the boxes, but rather he is opening our eyes to what the church is. Here is what the church is, and you, brothers and sisters, are, are to behave in a way that is fitting, in a way that fits what the church is. He provides us with three descriptions of the church. One, the church is the household of God. What a beautiful description that is. It is the household of God. Two, the church is the church of the living God. Also a beautiful description. And three, the church is a pillar and buttress of the, church, of the truth. Whatever we do in the church, it's to fit this, what the church is. First of all, the apostle refers to the church as the household of God. What a beautifully warm description of the church. The church, that is the church in Ephesus long ago, this local church and every other true congregation is the household of God. This description of the church fits quite naturally with many other biblical doctrines. Take, for example, Paul's teaching regarding adoption. In his letter to the Ephesians, he taught that God the Father predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. If you are in the Beloved, that is, if you are united to Christ by faith, then you are adopted sons. You have God as Father. Those who have believed upon Christ with you are rightly called Brothers and sisters, you have therefore gained a family in Christ Jesus, and it is no wonder then that Paul refers to the church as the household of God. What is the church? What is she? Well, she is a spiritual family. And this is more than a metaphor, it is in fact a spiritual reality. The moment you believed upon Christ, you gained 
a family. You have God as Father. You have brothers and sisters, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The church, the church is the household of God. And I wonder if you can see how knowing what the church is enables us to know how, are we, are, how we are to behave as members of the church. Now, to illustrate this, imagine that Paul had described the church differently. Imagine he had described the church differently. What if he had written these words instead, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that, you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the school of God. What if Paul had said that? What if he had described the church as the school of God? Now, granted, the church is like a school in some ways. Teaching is to take place within the church, just as it does in schools. But the church is more than a school. It is a family. And so in the church we should not only expect to receive instruction, but we should also expect to have very close relationships with one another. We should expect to live life together so that we help one another through times of personal difficulty. We should expect to establish deep bonds that are not easily broken. We should expect to have leaders who not only teach, but who truly care for the church, to name just a few things. What the church is, is going to impact what we expect from her, what we expect to experience within her midst. I might also use other terms. The church is not the school of God, neither is the church the business of God, neither is the church the concert hall of God, neither is the church the summer camp of God. You see where I'm going with this. What the church is impacts how we are to behave within it. The church is here described as the household of God, and therefore we should expect something like family activity to take place within her walls, within her midst, as the church assembles together. To make just one connection between what Paul says concerning the nature of the church and the instructions that he gives concerning behavior in the church, I will remind you of one of the qualifications that Paul laid down for overseers or elders in 1 Timothy 3.4, we learn that an overseer must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, it is because the church is the household of God, this is her nature, this is what she is, that we must appoint overseers who have demonstrated the ability to manage their own households, for they will need to not only teach, but to care for God's church. Stated differently, given the nature of the church, an overseer will need to act more like a father than a professor, and the members of the church will need to act like brothers and sisters rather than fellow students or some other thing. The church is the household of God. And I wonder if you would be willing to reflect more upon this idea that the church is the household of God later today. Ask yourself, if the church is God's household, then what does that mean for the officers and members? How should we view one another? What attitude should the members have toward one another? What kind of relationships should we seek to establish and to maintain the fact that the church is the household of God is going to have a profound impact upon how we do church, how we behave within the congregation. And yes, I do realize that the words family, household, father, brother and sister will mean different things to different people depending upon 
their life experiences. Wouldn't you agree with me about that? For many, these words do not produce thoughts of love, faithfulness, nurture, warmth, and protection, but of things contrary to these. If it is true of you, if this is true of you, then you must work doubly hard in Christ to first learn what a physical household ought to be, and then to consider what God's household is called to be. Both things may be learned from God's Word and through the observation of good examples within the church today. The church is called the household of God because the church is God's family. God is our Heavenly Father. He has reconciled us to Himself through faith in His Son. We were once children of wrath, but now we are His beloved children. He has graciously adopted us as His own. He has set His name upon us. In Christ we are brothers and sisters dwelling together in God's spiritual house. In God's house there is to be order. In God's house there is to be love. In God's house there is to be nurture and admonition. Secondly, the Apostle refers to the church as the church of the living God. The church is the church of the living God. And with this little phrase, he reminds us of who we belong to, of who gives us life, and of who it is that dwells in our midst. The church, that is to say the church in Ephesus so long ago, this local church and every other true congregation, is a church of the living God. When Paul calls the church the church of the living God, he reminds us of who we belong to. The church is God's church. We belong to God, who is here called the living God. Our God is different from the gods of the nations, for our God is the living God. He is alive. The gods of the nations are not alive. They are dead, dumb, deaf, and mute. They are the product of men. Men fashion idols with their hands. They form gods for themselves in their minds. But our God is alive. We have not made Him, but He has made us. We have not formed Him in our imaginations, but He has formed us and He has revealed His Word to us. He has graciously revealed Himself to us. And our God is called the living God because He has life within Himself. The life that is in God is not derived from any other source The life that we have is acquired life. Have you ever thought about this distinction? God is alive, and we are alive, but it's a different kind of life that God has, isn't it? The life that we have is acquired life. We have received it from outside of ourselves. We would not exist were it not for our mother and father, for example. We would not exist were it not from the support that we have received from them and from others. We would not exist were it not for the sustenance that we glean even from the natural world. Our life depends upon things external to us, and all of these things are from God. He has made them. He, therefore, is the source of all life. We are alive because He has made us. But the life that is in Him is His alone. He has a different kind of life within Himself. He acquired it from no one else. Just as our confession so beautifully says in chapter 2, paragraph 2, that God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, is alone, in and unto Himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone, fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom 
are all things. And our confession continues, but that will suffice for now. I love that statement. He alone is the fountain of all being. We are alive because the God who is life has given us life. Our God is the living God, and the church belongs to Him. What a wonderful truth this is to consider. When Paul calls the church the church of the living God, he also reminds us of who it is that gives us life. God, the living God, gives us life, as we have just said. He's given us physical life, but He is also the one who has given us spiritual life. As Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. We were spiritually dead, brothers and sisters, because of our sin. But God, the living God, has given us spiritual life. The spiritual life that is ours in Christ Jesus is eternal life. And when Paul calls the church the church of the living God, he also reminds us of who it is that dwells in the midst of us. This, I think, is Paul's central concern. He wishes to remind us of who we belong to, of who gives us life, and of who it is that dwells in our midst. The living God dwells in the midst of His churches. At the beginning of the sermon I read from Psalm 84, In that psalm, the sons of Korah tell of how wonderful it is to dwell in the temple of God and in God's presence, saying, among other things, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Did you hear the phrase there? In other words... We long to be in the presence of the living God who dwells in His temple. Notice that phrase, to the living God. I could have also read Psalm 42, where a similar theme is found. As a deer pants for flowing streams, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So do you hear the phrase again? God is called the living God in Psalm 42. And then in verse 4 of the same psalm, The psalmist says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. What is he describing except going up to the temple to, to dwell in the presence of God? And there the temple is also called what? The house of God. Perhaps you're beginning to put things together in your mind. The apostle is here referring to the church as the household of God, and he is now calling the church, the church of the living God, in order to make a connection for us. He is saying, in essence, the church is God's temple. The church is that place where God dwells with His people. He is reminding us of who it is that dwells in the midst of the churches. It is the living God who dwells in the midst of us, He is a great comfort to His people in times of plenty and in times of want, in times of peace and in times of distress. He dwells in the midst of us. And this corresponds to what Paul teaches elsewhere regarding the church as the temple of God under the New Covenant era. You should remember that to the Ephesians. He said, 
For Christ Himself is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through Him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see the theology that here Paul is setting forth? That in this new covenant era, God's temple is no longer constructed of brick and mortar. But rather, in this new covenant era, Jew and Gentile, having been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in the midst of us in the way that He dwelt within that temple which Solomon constructed so long ago. A great transition has taken place in this new covenant era. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, is what Paul says so directly in 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17. And he is not there referring just to you as an individual Christian. He says that elsewhere. But here, the you is in the plural. You, church in Corinth, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, he warns, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. If this truth regarding what the church is doesn't inform our behavior, then I don't know what will. Think of it, brothers and sisters. If the church is the temple of the living God, if the living God dwells in the midst of her, that is going to impact our behavior as members of Christ's church. We are to be holy, for God is holy as members of His church. His temple must be kept holy and pure. We are to approach the living God with reverence and awe. We are to lift up holy hands to Him in prayer as we assemble together as God's people. We are to take comfort and encouragement in His presence to name just a few things. Knowing what the church is has a profound impact upon our behavior within the church. Thirdly, the Apostle calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. These are architectural terms being used as metaphors. In Solomon's temple, there were two main pillars named Jachin and Boaz, meaning he shall establish, and it is, it, it, in it is strength. That is 1 Kings 7.5. I, I think that Paul is here alluding to those a very prominent pillars in, in, in Solomon's temple. But here he is saying that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillars are designed to hold things up, but to do so in a beautiful way. A buttress means support or foundation. And here Paul uses this terminology to teach that the church of the living God is designed by God to beautifully undergird and hold aloft God's truth in word and in deed. This is what the church is designed to do. The church is to function as a pillar and buttress of the truth. It is designed to undergird 
and hold aloft God's truth in word and in deed. If this is what the church is, this too will inform our behavior. For example, it is no wonder that Paul urged Timothy at the very start of this epistle to remain at Ephesus so that he may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Why was that his prime responsibility as a minister of the gospel there in Ephesus? Well, it is because the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. One of its main concerns must be to put out everything that is false, to warn people not to teach any different doctrine. Later in the letter, Paul gives Timothy these instructions. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Again, this behavior is fitting for a minister within Christ's church. He is to faithfully read the Scriptures. He is to faithfully teach the Scriptures and exhort, which means to encourage and comfort from the Scriptures. Why? Because the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. She is designed for this purpose to undergird and hold aloft God's truth in word and in deed so that all may see it. And what truth is the church to hold aloft? What truth? The answer is simply this, God's truth. The church is to preach and teach the truth of God's word, which has the gospel of Jesus Christ as its central message. In brief, the church is to preach and teach Christ crucified, risen, and ascended. Colossians 1.28 has functioned as a kind of mission statement for me as a, a pastor or preacher. And for the teaching ministry at Emmaus as well. It is there in Colossians 1.28 that Paul says this, Him, speaking of Christ, we proclaim. So what do you do, Paul? What is your ministry all about? As a minister of the Word of God, what do you do? Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so what are ministers of the Word to proclaim? They are to proclaim Christ. There's a very succinct way of saying that the minister is to preach the Scriptures, showing Christ to be the central figure and fulfillment of all of them. And indeed, that is where Paul takes us in this very passage. After calling the church a pillar and buttress of the truth, he immediately recites a hymn or a saying of the early church in order to summarize the church's message. You will notice that this hymn or saying of the early church summarizes the church's central message by telling of the work of Christ. First, this hymn will tell us about the accomplishment of Christ's work. Second, this hymn will tell us about the observation of Christ's work. Um, others witnessed it. And third, this hymn will describe to us the response to the work of Christ, both in heaven and on earth. It is a beautiful little expression which Paul uses to summarize the truth which the church is to undergird and hold aloft. In verse 16, we read this introductory phrase, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Notice that Paul calls the saying that follows, which we will read just in just a moment, a great or marvelous confession. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The saying which follows is a brief creed-like statement which summarizes the central teaching of the church. 
And Paul refers to this teaching as the mystery of godliness. What what does that mean? Well, the mystery in Paul is a truth that was once largely hidden, but has now been revealed. Listen to how Paul uses the term mystery at the end of Romans, and you'll see what I mean. At the end of Romans, we read this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That is Romans 16, 25-27. That little text there is very helpful to understand what Paul means here in 1 Timothy by mystery. A mystery in Paul is the truth about Christ, once largely concealed, but now revealed. The term translated as godliness means religion, or appropriate beliefs and devout practice. In other words, in Christ, God has now revealed to us most clearly what it is that we are to believe and how it is that we are to live as His people. This truth is great, and this is the truth which the Apostle, along with the early church, confessed evidently with these very words. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This saying of the early church, briefly and with very broad brushstrokes, confesses the Christian faith. There is some debate as to the structure of the same, but I think it is best to divide it into three parts with two lines per part. Stay with me here for just a moment. I think this is beautiful. In each of the three sections, one line will emphasize the physical or earthly aspect of Christ's work. The other will provide the the spiritual or heavenly perspective. And the progression of the three sections is this. First, we have a summary of the accomplishment of Christ's work. Second, a summary of the observation of Christ's work. And thirdly, a summary of the response to Christ's work. The first two lines summarize the accomplishment of the work of redemption in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. The first line says this, He was manifested in the flesh. What does that mean? The word manifest means to make visible. And this speaks to the birth of Christ and the whole incarnation Indeed, the eternal Son of God took on flesh to accomplish our redemption. He was born into the world. He lived in the flesh. He died in the flesh. How was our redemption accomplished? By Christ, who was and is God incarnate. And we confess that He was manifested in the flesh. The second line says that He was vindicated by the Spirit. And so notice the shift from the physical now to the spiritual perspective. He was manifested in the flesh on earth through the virgin birth, the incarnation, His whole life. But He was also vindicated by the Spirit. That is the heavenly or spiritual perspective. When we think of the work of Christ, we should always remember, brothers and sisters, these two realms, the earthly and the heavenly, for they are intimately connected in Christ. Christ came to reconcile men on earth to our Father in heaven. He came to rescue us, body and soul. 
He came to conquer death, physical and spiritual. Christ overcame the world, and He defeated the powers of darkness in the spiritual realm. This little saying that we are now considering bounces back and forth from the earthly to the heavenly perspective to remind us that the work that Christ has accomplished has impacted both realms. The little phrase, vindicated by the Spirit, means that Christ was proven to be right and true by the Spirit of the living God. And we saw this in the whole of His life, and also, and especially, in His resurrection. How did the Spirit of God vindicate Christ? How did the Spirit of God prove that Christ was right and true? Well, consider, for example, the miracles that Christ performed in His earthly ministry. What were those about? Was Christ merely showing off when He performed those miracles? Did He heal only for the sake of bringing healing to the one who is sick? No, more than that, these miracles were signs. They were miracles worked by the power of the Holy Spirit to signify that Christ was something other than a mere man, that His claims were true claims. That's how these miracles functioned in Christ's earthly ministry. They, they vindicated Him. They were worked by the power of the Holy Spirit to vindicate or to prove that Christ was right and true. And then we are to think ultimately of Christ's resurrection as the greatest vindication by the Spirit of God. When was Christ proven to be indeed the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, the Christ, the Messiah, except for that when He rose from the dead on the third day. This was the greatest vindication of all. The second portion of this hymn or saying describes the observation of Christ's finished work in heaven and on earth. The first line of the second section says, seen by angels. The heavenly beings watched Christ finish the work of redemption through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And the second line of the second section says, proclaimed among the nations. And so we are to remember that the apostles, along with the other disciples of Christ, observed the accomplishment of our redemption. They were witnesses to the resurrection, and they in turn proclaimed Christ, crucified and risen, to the nations. The nations observed Christ's finished work through their word. And the third section of this confession describes the response to Christ's finished work on earth and in heaven. The first line of the third section says that He was believed on in the world. So how did the nations respond to the news of Christ's finished work? Many received Him. Many believed upon His name. And the second line of the third section says that He was taken up in glory. This refers to the ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand. And how did the heavenly realm respond to Christ's finished work? They received Him as the victorious one. He entered into glory and sat down on His heavenly throne, all authority in heaven on earth having been given to Him. I know this was a bit of a technical consideration of this hymn or saying of the early church broken into three sections with one line describing the heavenly, the other, the earthly, and, and so on and so forth. But do you see how this great confession does in fact summarize the central claim of the Christian faith? That Jesus Christ has come in fulfillment to the Old Testament Scriptures. He has lived, He has died, He has risen again, He has ascended to the Father's right hand, indeed proving that He was the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. It is a very succinct little statement here, but it encapsulates the, the entire Christian faith if we were to tease out every line. 
and show from the whole of Scripture its significance. The point is this, brothers and sisters, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. She is to undergird and hold aloft the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She is to proclaim the mystery of godliness. The Christ has come. He has accomplished our redemption through His life, death, burial, and resurrection, and His ascension. He has defeated the kingdom of darkness, sin and death, and He reigns supreme. This is our confession. And so how are we to behave in Christ's church? How are we to act? What are we to devote ourselves to? Again, many specific things may be said in response to that question, but certainly we must understand what the church is if we are to know how to behave as members. Perhaps you have noticed how easy it is for churches to grow distracted, to busy themselves with many things not commanded in the Scriptures which do not correspond to the nature of the church. We must remember always that the church is the household of God. The church is the temple of the living God. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul has and will continue to provide us with specific instructions concerning proper behavior within Christ's church. But it is possible to do what he commands in a mechanical way. Understanding the nature of the church will help us to maintain a proper heart attitude and mindset as we seek to order the church according to God's design. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would help us to be the church that you've called us to be. Help us to see the church as a marvelous thing, the household of God, the temple of the living God, pillar and buttress of the truth, Lord, may we never come to church complacent. May we never come to church in a haphazard way, but may we assemble together as your people, ready to give glory to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we come with reverence and awe. May we come ready to lift up holy hands before you. May we come being ready to engage in true fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. May we come being eager to hear Your Word proclaimed so that we might live according to the truth of Your Word and hold it aloft for all the world to see. Father, increase our love for the church. Increase our appreciation for her. Father, help us to live as members of Your household in a way that is fitting both when we gather together and when we scatter abroad. In both places, may we give honor to your name, which we bear, because you have adopted us as beloved children. In Christ's name we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.